Hey, welcome. Thanks for joining us for Galatians. Uh, we're jumping back into this. Uh, we took a week off um, and had Kenny Grant in here. And Kenny, I mean, is always amazing. So love hearing from him. But we're picking back up in Galatians chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and grab that. Come find it because we're going to be covering a lot of Scripture. Now, if you're new to church or following Jesus and you're trying to figure out like, Galatians, where is that? We're going to put a lot of screen or scripture on the screens. Um, but I would encourage you, especially when we can't really like gather face to face and be close, let the word be a source for you to like get engaged and figure this out and become familiar with it. So, um, because that's why, why we're doing this series. We want to be, become more familiar with the issues that Paul was addressing. And so that's why we're walking through this again. Galatians 3, we're going to cover a lot. But here's what I think the main tension is. Um, just thinking through everything that we're going to process. Um, here's what I think the main idea is. It's built around this idea. Where you receive your identity from, okay? So where you, where you receive your identity from, it determines... What, you, what others receive from you. And so how, what you're building your identity around, what, what you're allowing to say who you are, all these things, what you're building your identity around, that's going to be the thing that determines what other people receive from you. And so as we go through this chapter, we're gonna start in the first half talking a lot about Paul addressing a specific issue that the people in Galatia, that he's writing to the church there in Galatia, the, the people he's writing to, he's saying, you, you're shifting, you're turning away from the gospel as this place where you find your identity, right? This, is, this new reality that you're living, it's, it comes from understanding and living out the gospel. And he's saying, you're turning from that and you're now basing identity on other things. And when you do that, it messes up the rest of life. It confuses things. Because where you receive identity from determines what people receive from you. And so that's, that's the overarching idea, okay? So we're going to jump into the passage real quick. Um, look at this with me. We'll start um, chapter 3, verse 1. Look at this. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Hold up right here. Listen to this. I mean, I think about Paul like, hey, why don't we have Paul come in here as a guest speaker? Man, he's such a dynamic. He really gets it. He, and he starts off with, you foolish Americans, right? Think about this. Who's, who's bewitched you, you thoughtless, witless group of people? What has happened to you? What do you think? That's how he starts, okay? And he keeps going on. He says, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Look at the next part. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? What he's saying is, where did you get this from in the first place? Did you get it from this, did you get it from the law that you tried hard enough, you upheld these rules and it worked for you, or did you get it by faith? He's saying, where is your identity coming from? And again, hold on to that because it's this idea of where you receive your identity. It's gonna be the thing that people receive from you. Verse three, he keeps going. He says, are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really is in vain? So again, I ask you, 
Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? He's saying, where's it coming from? Where did you get this thing from? Where's the identity based on? I love how N.T. Wright, he talks about um, what's going on here in chapter three. And he tells this famous story, okay? So Charles Blondin was the guy, lived in the 19th century. He's the guy who set up a tightrope across Niagara Falls, all right? And so he's the one who set this up and started showing people what he could do. So he sets up this line. He starts walking across Niagara Falls. And then he's building the crowd and people are coming around. And, and so he starts amping it up a little bit. He sits on a stool and eats, you know, a snack or something. He, so he's doing all these things. And then there's a point where Blondin says, is anybody willing, is anybody trust me enough to go, get on my back and walk across Niagara Falls? And supposedly there was a guy who actually was courageous or crazy enough to actually do this. And so he gets on his shoulders and he begins walking across Niagara Falls. Now, I'm sure he made it and they made it back or it was a terrible disaster, I'm not sure. But here's the thing I want you to understand. What if halfway through, okay, he gets on his shoulders, this famous tightrope walking, he gets on his shoulder, he gets halfway through. And what if the guy actually said, you know what, I got it from here. I think I can do this. What, he's, he's like, what, what started with you, I think I can finish it. Paul is saying, what makes you think that what started with the gospel, what started with Christ, what makes you think what he began in you, you can finish in the flesh? What makes you think you can do this without faith? What makes you abandon what started this work in you thinking you can finish it? And so the Galatians, they're turning and grasping for something to give them identity. And what he is saying is you're grasping after the wrong things. It's not going to work. It's not going to get you where you need to go. You can't possibly, you can't possibly do what Christ did in you on your own. It's not going to happen. You can't finish that journey that he began. And so that's why Paul's so fired up because he's like, you're going to miss what is available to you through the gospel. So verse six, look, at, we're gonna keep going. So also Abraham, he's throwing the trump card, all right? So Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then, all right, he ties it up. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. This is a faith thing, meaning your identity, your identity is received from God through faith. If you build your identity on anything else, if you build your life on anything else other than God, it will disappoint you. It won't get you where you need to go. It can't possibly give you the worth that God can put in you because he made you. It can't get you what you need. And so he's saying, your identity is received from God through faith, not through works. Can't earn it. So let's take a minute and talk about faith real quick. So biblical faith. Um, and when you hear the word faith uh, in the New Testament, it can mean a few different things. So faith, it can mean belief. It can mean trust. So when somebody says, I have faith in Jesus, what, what you're saying is, I'm banking my life on him. I'm trusting in him. 
and faith. And we're living this life not according to our flesh, but we're living by faith because we know I can't walk the tightrope and make it to the other side. I can't work hard enough and figure that out. I have to live by faith. I have to trust and sit on the shoulders of Christ to get me to the next place, to get me across this place. But so when I think of faith, I think of three things, okay? First off, I think of understanding of the mind. All right, we're gonna put it up here. So understanding of the mind. That means that I know these things. All right, I know Jesus. I've, I've read scripture, I've read history, so I know he was really here, okay? <clears throat> really a man, really walked. That's not just information from the Bible, that's information from extra biblical curriculum. It, it shows you he was real, he died on a cross. I know that about him. I'm even convinced that when, even after he died on the cross that he was raised to life again after three days. I know these things. I know that life following the ways of Jesus is way better than anything else that I've done. So I know these things in my mind. But the second dynamic of faith is this. It's a desire of the heart. So it is an understanding of the mind. It is like I know these things to be true. I know this to be real but it's also a desire of the heart. It's the difference between knowing about Jesus and wanting to know him deeply, wanting a relationship with him. So let's use our example again with with the tightrope thing. It's the difference between like, I've watched this guy walk the tightrope. I know he can do it. And as he's doing it, I feel something in me wanting to be a part of that experience. Like I'm on this side and I want to know what it's like to go on this journey and I want to know what it's like to be on the other side. So it's an understanding of the mind, but it's a desire of the heart. But the third part of this, listen to this, third part of faith is this. It's a submission of the will. It's a, it's a submission of the will. It's one thing to know that somebody can do something, okay? It's one thing to know that this guy can cross from one side to the next side. It's another thing to even desire to be a part of that, right? To to want to be a part of that. It is another thing entirely to be the person who steps out of a crowd and says, yeah, I'll get on your shoulders and I'll trust you to get me to the other side without dropping me. It's another thing entirely to submit your will to this person. And listen, when it comes to biblical faith, faith that knows Jesus with the mind, but refuses to submit one's will to his ways, that's not a biblical faith. That is not a saving faith. That's what James in his letter says. That's not a faith that actually works, okay? To know Jesus and know about him, but it doesn't impact the way you live. doesn't impact, you haven't submitted your will or there's no desire to be a part of his kingdom and what he wants. That's not a working faith. That's a, that, that's a different thing. So here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, Abraham, he had faith. He trusted God completely. God said, I'm making you this promise. I'm inviting, I wanna do something through you. And Abraham banked his life on it. He banked his life on it. So he keeps going, ready? Verse eight. Scripture for Saul that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Now, listen to that for a second, okay? Scripture foresaw 
that God would justify Gentiles by faith. All of a sudden, the Jewish crowd listening to this letter goes, hold on, wait a second. This is, this is bigger than I thought it was. This is, this is not just for me. It seems like God's hands are open to something bigger than, like his mission is bigger than I realize, okay? Because it, scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. They're invited into this. And he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. Look at what he said. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are being blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So here, here's some kind of backstory. When you hear Paul reference Abraham, okay, when you hear him mentioned, you immediately think of, or, or the audience would immediately think of two things. They would think of a promise and they would think of covenant because Abraham was the beginning. He was the one that God came to and said, I'm gonna make you a promise. I'm gonna show up in your life. I'm gonna take your little family, just you and your wife right now, and look up, you see the stars? Okay, your, your family is gonna be of a greater number than these stars. I'm gonna do this work in you. And here's part of the promise too. He says, I'm going to bless you. That means I'm gonna choose your family out of every family, out of every nation in the world. I'm gonna take your family and I'm gonna pour my blessing into you so that you become a picture of what it means to be in relationship with Yahweh God so that you understand what it means to be in a relationship so that, now this is the big part, so that every nation around you will look at you and go, I want what they have. If their God leads that way, if their God provides that way, if their God loves that way and works that way and shows up that way, if their God's not angry like the gods we keep serving, I want what they have. That was the intention. Genesis 12 was the very beginning when God made this promise. So when Abraham is mentioned by Paul, all of a sudden we precede, we show up before the law was established. So whenever you read Moses, okay, meaning like the gospels and a lot of times they're, they're talking about Moses because Moses was their guy. Moses was the guy who established the law through God because what happened was all of a sudden we realize there's a gap between God and his people and Moses became an Old Testament Testament mediator between God and man. And so Moses was the guy known for the law because it was the way of keeping God's people close to himself, or at least trying to do so. But when Paul says, let me talk about Abraham, he's saying, I'm going back before the law. I'm going back before the thing that you've built your identity on. He's saying, I'm going to the thing that you need to return to a promise that I will be their God and they will be my people. Set apart for the world to look at and long for that kind of relationship with creator God. That's what Paul's saying when he's talking about Abraham. So let's keep following this out because he's building a case against all these things the Galatians have turned towards to gain identity, all right? So look at this, we're at verse 10. He says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. Think about that. 
He's saying the law can't get you there. And so when Paul talks about the law, he's referring to a few different things. I think he refers to it kind of like a mirror, okay? He says the law is like this mirror. It, it reflects who you are. It can't make you who you should be. All it can do is show you what righteousness looks like and therefore reflects your lack of righteousness. It shows you you're not good enough. You're not gonna measure up. You can't possibly earn your way to this. So he thinks of it like a mirror and a mirror just simply exposes what is. And so when you hold yourself up against the law, you know that you are one thing. You haven't, you haven't made it. You, you haven't measured up to it, all right? So he talks about it in reference to a law. He also says the law is kind of like living under a curse. How many of you have felt this, okay? Striving, trying, working to be good enough, trying to make something happen, aiming to attain something that is impossible through the law. He says that's like living under a curse. It's like living under the weight that you can't possibly bear. So look at what Jesus did. Verse 13, look at this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is the one who hung on a pole or other translations say on a tree. Look at 14, here's what it says. He redeemed us, purchased us, okay? He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Here's what Paul's saying. Like this guy Blondin who noticed there was a gap, the Niagara Falls, impossible for anyone to cross over on their own. In the same way there was a gap there, Sin created a gap between God and humanity. And so, like Blondin, Christ made a way for us. He dealt with the consequence of our sin by dying on the cross, and then he made a way for us. He paved a path for us to now become those who inherit the promise of God that we see and experience through the Spirit. He solved it. We were ones living under a curse and he became a curse on our behalf. And he busted wide open the opportunity for us to receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now we're gonna jump way down, all right? We're gonna jump down to verse 23. Look at what happens next. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian, Again, he's trying to help you understand the different ways to perceive the law. He says it's like a guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Can't be justified by the law, but justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So that word guardian is simply means a babysitter. That means someone to help keep order. It's kind of like this idea of helping to keep you close to God and, and, and try to keep it until he returns. It's like date night at our house, okay? I got four kids. Date night is like, oh, thank you, Jesus, we made it, you know? And so we get a babysitter and we say, good luck. Because we're, what we want you to do is just try to some semblance of 
order, some semblance of like manage the chaos. As long as something's not broken or a house doesn't catch on fire, we're like, that's a win for us. Because the idea is keep order until we come back. The law was designed, it was intended because sin, sin created this gap between man and God. And so Moses, acting as a mediator, brought the law on behalf of God to act as this babysitter, to, to, to manage his people, to keep them in order until he comes. And Jesus came, and now we don't need the law. We don't need it. He, he didn't abolish it. He satisfied it. He, uh, he fulfilled it. That's what Matthew says in his gospel, that Jesus came and everything that was required, everything that made us look guilty and not good enough, he satisfied. And therefore, we who are in him live that kind of life. That's what we experience. So everybody, let's take a deep breath real quick. Because I feel like we, you know, we trudge through a lot of scripture so let me just clarify, here's what Jesus did. All right, three things. First off, here's what he accomplished. He satisfied the law by becoming a curse on our behalf by dying on the cross. He satisfied it. We don't have to carry the weight of that anymore. We don't have to carry that. Here's the second thing that happened. He opened the way for us to participate in the promise through faith in him. You have to get on his shoulders and he's the one who walks across. That you can't do it on your own. But he opened the way for us to do that. Now, here's where Paul's going. Here's the third thing. He granted us a new identity. He, he did something new. All right, look at this. Verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, in him, you are all children of God through faith, for all of you who were baptized into Christ were clo have clothed yourselves with Christ. Look at this verse, 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. That doesn't matter anymore. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are R is the identity word. Then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Listen, like one who is married, okay? Like one who is married, you've entered into a new reality, the new oneness with your spouse. That means that you have now started this new thing and, and what God brought together now has produced a new family. It's a new identity with a new name. That means that when you leave your house, we don't leave there and act as though we're not married. Marriage is this oneness that comes by a commitment to covenantal love bound by God himself. And so when we are married, we're one. We don't leave the house and act like we're not. Because when you're married and you leave the house and act like you're not married, it produces problems. It creates chaos, right? Same thing. Listen, same in the same way. If in your mind and heart you understand, I am in 
Christ. As, as he ended chapter two, he said, I have been crucified. I've been crucified with Christ. Theologically, practically, historically, my sinful life died with Jesus on the cross. It's no longer I who lives. It is Christ who is living his life in me, his life through me. I'm not concerning myself with anything of myself. I'm living for him. What he wants to do, what his agenda is, that's what I am about. And so everybody who in their heart and mind know I am in Christ, but then you walk and you live as though you're not living for him. As though you're living for yourself and your agenda and you're trying to find those things. If you do that, it's going to create problems to be in Christ but not live like it. It's going to produce problems, namely disordered identity and purpose. It's going to wreak havoc on you trying to figure out who you are. And this is the point that Paul has been leading towards towards the end of the chapter right here. Misplaced identity produces inequality. Misplaced identity produces inequality. If you base your identity on the law or on your flesh, what that means is you're going to see others and you're gonna hold them accountable to the law based on your flesh. That's not the gospel. That's not what Jesus died for. That's not what Paul preached that brought the spirit to this community and the church. That's not what we're living for. Listen, we base our identity on Jesus himself. Therefore, we see and we treat others according to the way that he sees people. And that produces equality. Look, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your race is. There's neither slave nor free. It doesn't matter your economic status. That's not where you get your identity from. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. That's not where you get your identity from. It doesn't matter if you're black or white or brown. It doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat. These are not the things that we base our identity on. But if we base our identity on those things, it produces inequality. But if we simply live the gospel, which is I am living Christ's life, not living Harrison's life, I'm living Christ's life, then it produces equality. So as we wrap up, I want to give you a way of thinking about this. I want to give you two ideas, okay? Here's what they are. Ask the question, am I an image bearer or a standard bearer? Am I an image bearer or a standard bearer? Here's what I mean by this. As an image bearer, that means you're a follower of Jesus and you recognize that I'm living his life. I'm in him because you remember all the way back to Genesis chapter one where God said, let us create them in our image. And so every human bears the image of God. It might be broken, it might be distorted, sin is done, wreaked havoc on God's image in us, but it is still there. And Jesus is reconciling his image in us through the power of the Spirit. So everybody who trusts him, his image is being restored. That means we are image bearers first. But if you're a standard bearer, 
That's because you've built your identity around something else. Like the Jewish people, for instance. They were building their life around markers of their family, like the law, like the place to worship, like different things. And so here's what that means. That means they held the standard right here and said, if you don't obey our laws, if you don't worship where we worship, if you're not from where we're from, then all of a sudden there's a gap because they're a standard bearer and they've produced a gap of inequality because you don't measure up. You haven't met the standard that I am carrying. So the question is, are you an image bearer? Or are you a standard bearer? Let me give you some examples. Paul wrote a letter to Philemon and he had this encounter with one of Philemon's slaves who eventually ran away, gave his life to Jesus. Paul mentored him and actually sent him back to Philemon to kind of finish some business. And in his letter, he wrote, Philemon, I wanna give you a chance and I actually wanna appeal to you that you don't see him. You don't see him according to status. He's saying, Philemon, don't be a standard bearer. I'm master, he's slave. But be an image bearer, which means you see him as a brother. Because every image bearer, when they see through the image of God that they've been given, when they see life as an image bearer, they recognize the image of God in others. That's what they see. They don't see the standard and the gap. They don't see this. They see the image of God. They look at every human they cross paths with, every person they rub shoulders with. They recognize something familiar about their Father in heaven in that person. So you treat people differently. Let me give you one more example, okay? Are you an American Christian or are you a Christian who is an American? And if we're holding these things, are you an image bearer first or are you a standard bearer? So an, an American who happens to be a Christian, I would say might be a standard bearer. That means this is what it looks like to be an American. And if there's any gap, like you don't look the same as me or talk the same as me or you didn't grow up in the same place, you can tend to produce a gap of inequality and treat people according to that. But if you're a Christian, an image bearer first, who happens to be an American, that means you're an image bearer. That means you see every person as one who shares the same resemblance of our Father. That's what an image bearer does. An image bearer actually treats people like they're humans. Standard bearers have a way of dehumanizing people. Image bearers find a way of making people feel human like more human. And listen, the church, I mean, I truly believe this. The church is the only place this side of heaven where true equality is even possible. The church historically has not got that right, okay? That's not been true. But there's, our world doesn't provide any solution to this. There is no hope outside of Jesus himself. 
There is no way this is possible. The church, again, is the only place this side of heaven where true equality is possible. That's because the church is a new thing. It's a new people. It's a new family. It's a restored promise where God said it's for all people. I want everybody to have a relationship with me. I want everybody to experience a life of blessing because they know me and they experience me. He says, I want everybody to know what that feels like. And the church is where it happens. It's the only place where true equality and even more true humanity can be experienced in community because we count ourselves in Christ, the one who brings equality. I'll end it with this. I was listening to a message by Vodi Bakum, amazing pastor, um, and here's one thing that he argues. He says, the only division that actually matters is between humanity and God. And so he goes on to say that the differences in humanity are actually from him. But look at what Jesus did. The death of Christ on the cross removed the division between man and God. And at the same time celebrates the differences in humanity. And the church is the reflection of God. That's what we do. So may we be the place where division is, is done because we're in Christ and our differences are celebrated. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing, who you are. Thank you that we don't have to search for a place to find identity, a place like the law or a place like where we came from or what we are good at or the relationships we're in. We don't have to base our identity on those things, but we base our identity on Jesus because he's restoring in us what we lost from the beginning, which is our humanity. Jesus just makes us better humans, and we're so thankful for that because we couldn't figure it out. So wherever we are, wherever we're listening from and participating in this from, I pray that you would help us. Help us to live your life through the power of your spirit. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. I'm so grateful for Harrison's word. It's interesting to think about the idea of what it means to be an image bearer of God rather than a standard bearer. And so I wanna ask a couple questions to help us process some of the ideas and thoughts that were communicated through the message. First question I wanna ask is, what is your identity built on? Is your identity built on who you are or where you came from, or rather who you are in Christ? And it leads me to the second question of, how does your identity impact the way you think? The way you think about God, the way you think about others, and honestly, how you think about yourself. As you process these questions and think about what God has for you in this message, I just want to remind you to check out CompassionChristian.com forward slash regather to find out all the information about when we are going to regather as a church. If you have any questions or concerns about that, all the information is in the family talk that we had at CompassionChristian.com forward slash regather. I want to encourage you to join us next week as Marcus brings Galatians 4. I want to tell you that we love you and we're grateful for you being a part of this service with us.